Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, it's Amy. Today we're bringing you an episode we put together earlier this year on the cannabis boom in North America. And just before we get started, a quick heads up. In the time since we recorded this episode, news of another massive deal in the sector broke. Earlier this month, Corona beer maker Constellation Brands made a nearly $4 billion investment in Canopy Growth, which is the Canadian cannabis group. And it's the largest investment in the sector to date. So with all of that in mind, here's the rest of our story that goes behind the money moving into the sector. We'll be back with a brand new episode next week. This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the podcast, we're looking at the budding business of legalized cannabis and how two entrepreneurs have two very different plans to capitalize on the boom. Medical marijuana is legal in 21 countries. In Canada, residents expect they'll be able to buy pot from pharmacies across the country later this year. In the U.S. alone, medical marijuana is legal in more than half the country. And analysts expect anywhere between $7 billion and $20 billion at stake. That prospect has attracted a host of entrepreneurs and investors trying to get in on the action before the market explodes. Hey, can you just introduce yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Norman Condi. I live in Warrington, Virginia currently, and I'm 55 years old. Norman doesn't really look or sound like someone who might sell pot. But he and his wife, Rochelle, along with their four kids, are packing up and heading north to get in on the budding cannabis industry in the state of Massachusetts. Some people think I'll end up in prison. Um, other people think I'm just crazy. Um, some people think I'll blow everything that I have and uh, end up somewhere living in some government shelter someplace. Yes, some of his neighbors are skeptical. Norman spent the first 20 years of his career as an IT project manager at the FDIC. That's the U.S. bank regulator. And there he managed the code that handled secure platforms for banks to download sensitive information. But then he took an early retirement to help his wife with a booming home health care business. And after a couple of years when she broke uh, about $4 million in sales, I decided to go ahead and just take early out of uh, FDIC um, and go to work for her. Norman says that he and his wife had always imagined that they'd eventually retire and buy a place in Florida or Arizona, someplace where they could count on warm weather. Um, but now it's like we're going back up into the cold um, and doing something that we never thought we would have done. That something is opening a marijuana dispensary near Boston, Massachusetts. The state's legal medical marijuana market officially opened with its first dispensary in 2015. And according to the official state government website, there were 26 registered medical dispensaries open for sale as of April 30th of this year. They served about 50,000 patients. Three years ago, um, we would have never even thought about opening up a medical marijuana or any marijuana business, for matter of fact. 
um, because it's against federal law, period. Um, And that's the way it is. But after our son got sick and we learned all the benefits of uh, medical marijuana and what it can do for kids with cancer, autism, um, arthritis for the elderly, um, it changed our whole aspect on everything. The Condi's 12-year-old son, Ryan, was diagnosed with leukemia in late 2016. And just five months later, he passed away. He had chemotherapy appointments each week, which took a toll on his appetite. Sometimes when he tried to eat, he'd get sick right after. Um, he'd eat like, uh, you know, one of his favorite pizza, just like every child. Um, and he would try to eat a piece of pizza and he'd get a couple bites in um, and then he would get sick. Um, and that's all he would have to eat for the entire week. And then we'd start the chemo again. Norman says Ryan weighed about 160 pounds when he was first diagnosed. And he was, I think, 77 or 78 when he passed away. I know if we would have had the opportunity to give him the medical marijuana, his quality of life would have been better. Now, opinions about the broader medical benefits and safety of cannabis are still mixed. But Norman cites a handful of studies promoting the benefits for patients with palliative conditions, people looking for relief from pain and anxiety. He and his wife want to set up their facility to offer marijuana to patients like their son, Ryan. And for now, they're planning to donate all of the profits back to the local community. But setting up this new venture is not going to be cheap. They've sold the home health care business, and they've put their house on the market. We have started already writing the business plan. It'll probably be done probably by the end of the weekend. How much does it cost to set up a medical marijuana business from, I guess, from start to finish? There's a a bunch of companies now that want to do the paperwork for you um, and set things up for you, set your business structure, do your business plan. Um, And I got quotes from ranges from 160 to up to 3 million um, to help set this stuff up and open up your business. That, uh, That range was just, just completely blew my mind. I'm assuming you mean $160,000. That's quite a range. $160,000, yes. So how much are you planning to put into this? How much do you think you'll have to invest? We have it figured for probably just under $400,000. My wife is very good and very detail-oriented, so I think we're just going to try to do the paperwork on our own. About $400,000. Can you you break that down? So I'd say just from the fees alone, it's probably about $50,000. Plus, you have to open up your shop before you even get your license. Um, You have to have it basically ready to go. So you have to rent the place. What we're looking for is having a small little area up front as a dispensary, um, probably about 2,000 to 2,500 square feet. Um, And then the back end of it being a grow shop in the back there. Yeah, I can imagine there's also lights and equipment and humidors, wages for for staff managing both the dispensary and uh, the, the growing side of the business. So there's a large, lot of startup cost initially. But it sounds like you've done your research. Are you ready for, to be a marijuana entrepreneur? You have to go all in or nothing. Norman and his wife are not the only entrepreneurs looking to get a foothold in the budding local industry. Massachusetts residents voted to legalize recreational adult use of marijuana, and it's only a matter of time before the commercial market to buy and sell it is up and running. Some see this total legalization in Massachusetts as a kind of harbinger for massive growth along the U.S. East Coast and beyond. My name is Nick Kovacevic, and I'm the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Kush Bottles. Nick and his co-founder, Dallas Mbimbo, started the company in 2010, 
selling packaging to medical marijuana dispensaries in Southern California. Uh, we noticed a lot of people going to the stores and buying cannabis uh, at the medical dispensaries, um, and these stores were sort of hiding in plain sight. Uh, they, they didn't have a lot of signage. Uh, they certainly weren't advertising anywhere. And uh, some of them were doing, you know, fifteen to $20,000 a day in sales, and that was all 100% cash. So you had this industry where, you know, nobody uh, is marketing to it. Uh, it's a relatively new emerging industry. Nobody even knows how to find these guys, let alone market to them. And uh, we're a couple of young entrepreneurs, and, and we figured, look, if there's an industry you want to crack, do, do you want to go into an industry that's 50 years old where everybody knows everybody and you're trying to break in? Or do you want to come into something that's new, emerging, uh, where you actually have a, have a shot at, at, at disrupting uh, really early on and being a first mover? They've since expanded into labels, growing as states gradually start to legalize medical marijuana and, in some cases, recreational adult use. They also provide the hardware for vaporizers and, with a recent acquisition, the hydrocarbon gases that are used to extract oils from the cannabis plant. Meaning they're involved in a portion of every sale their clients make, but they never actually touch the plant. And that's what makes our business much more attractive to the new investor or to an institution that has some rules and regulations in terms of how they can place their capital. And right now, investing in a company that directly touches a plant, say a, a grower or even a, a cannabis dispensary, um, that might be too much risk. Uh, or these funds may even uh, be precluded uh, per, based on their charter agreements uh, in terms of what types of businesses they can invest in. Nick's company trades on the New York-based OTCQB exchange with a market cap of about $400 million. To put that figure in context, Philip Morris, the maker of Marlboro cigarettes, among other brands, has a market cap of more than $100 billion. As for Cush's sales, they did about $18.8 million in its 2017 fiscal year. That's more than double what it did in the previous year. And Nick has big expectations for growth potential in the U.S. alone. Uh, luckily for us, the, the biggest market opportunity, the biggest cannabis market in the world is the United States. It's our home base. Uh, we're based in California, which is the biggest state in, in the U.S. Uh, but we also you know, know that the Northeast is going to be huge, um, eventually the Southeast. Um, so until we've really exhausted all these states here, you know, we, we have New York isn't legal. New Jersey isn't legal. Uh, Illinois, Texas, these are huge, gigantic markets um, that will probably legalize in the next five years. And so we have our hands full here, um, but also uh, we're going to take advantage of where we see fit abroad. And his next target is Massachusetts. We're very excited about the opportunity in Massachusetts. Uh, we feel like the market's very unique uh, for several reasons. Uh, number one, cannabis has not been as re uh, readily accessible in the Northeast or on the East Coast um, as it has been on the West Coast. Uh, California has been legal since 1996 for medical, and it's, it, quite frankly, has been very easy to get a medical card. You, you walk down the street in Venice Beach, people are holding the signs for you know $25. You walk in and spend 20 minutes with the doctor, and you're walking out with a, a legal medical marijuana card, and you can go buy cannabis at a dispensary. Um, that's not the case on the East Coast. Uh, it's been much more highly regulated on the medical side uh, for states that do have medical access, and the medical programs have not been very robust. You know, there's, there's a lot more upside uh, in the Northeast. Uh, the other really exciting thing about Massachusetts is the proximity and population density to other states. When Massachusetts legalizes, uh, there's going to be an opportunity for residents of Connecticut, residents of, of Rhode Island, Vermont, New Hampshire to just drive 
into Massachusetts, a, a short drive, and buy cannabis legally. Uh, what that's going to show is that the market's going to be very frothy, and uh, there'll be a lot of business done in Massachusetts. But all of that tax revenue is going to stay in the state of Massachusetts. And in our opinion, um, that's going to ignite uh, a fast forward or, or really some, some more traction in, on these other states' legislatures that are going to want to legalize for their state, keep those tax dollars in their home state. Um, why not, right? You're not, you're not benefiting anything. Uh, people still have access to cannabis, but you're losing all of the uh, economic upside uh, through the taxation of regulation of cannabis. We're investing heavily in, in that state. We have a uh, interest in a, in, a, in a large distribution center that we're opening up. Uh, we're also hiring aggressively on the sales front. Um, so we should have a fully functioning operation in Massachusetts uh, really by the end of the summer. Uh, to take advantage of where we see the growth there. Listening to Nick and to Norman, it's easy to think of the cannabis bed as full of upside. If Norman and his family are able to carry out their plan, they'll be helping kids like their son Ryan cope with illness. For Nick and Cush Bottles, there's a lot of money at stake. But with the attention on growth in Massachusetts and a recent spate of mergers among Canadian producers, I asked the FT's M&A correspondent, Eric Platt, to put the latest green rush into context. Great. So one of the things sparking this is what's happening in Canada, right? They're legalizing recreational marijuana later this year. And so while all these companies are billing this as like, we want to get ahead in medical marijuana, actually, when you talk to analysts following it, they say, well, no, yes, yes, they want to build out those offerings. But the real growth market here is the recreational market, when suddenly what's been in the black market and really not countable, not taxed, uh, is coming into the light. And it's interesting because now you're seeing rating agencies in the U.S. start to come up with models on what does this mean if New Jersey rec like legalizes recreational marijuana? Will this have a, an impact on their tax base? Does this actually improve the services they can offer their citizens and their credit rating? And it's fascinating to see that start to trickle through. Uh, when we look at surveys from people like Gallup, they're also showing increasing acceptance of either medical marijuana or recreational marijuana use. It's not held with the same stigma that it was uh, a decade or two ago. And so we're seeing this groundswell of companies that are ready to – who want to get on the ground floor of this. So it's a combination of growing political will for legalized recreational use coupled with, I guess, some early adopters, you could call them, early companies looking to cement, if, if not grow, their footprint as recreational use expands – is there any sense of the current size of the legal market? There are so many different opinions on this, and it really comes down to which consulting firm or bank are you talking to, right? Because everyone is kind of making up their own uh, assumptions on how many people smoke weed because getting data on it, it really comes down to surveys of people uh, – that you have to hope that they're answering honestly, right? Uh, Statistics Canada, where legalization is on the horizon later this year, has actually been doing a lot of work on this topic because they're trying to, you know, they realize they're going to have to quantify this usage for their GDP accounts and everything else that they produce. Uh, and so the work they've done is, is really fascinating. One of the banks in Canada says that the market could be about $7 billion by 2020. Uh, a study by Deloitte puts the figure over $20 billion uh, in the next you know few years. Uh, they're thinking of everything from, you know, both the growers and sellers to the labs that are going to be testing this to the, you know, online marketplaces uh, selling it or doing comparisons. And so this market is going to maybe not in the next few years rival tobacco and alcohol, but it is seen as the next big growth market for these kind of those kind of industries. In the Deloitte study, they were saying, you know, how many extra billion dollars a year will be 
created out of thin air for these products that we don't even know exist yet because demand will materialize at some point, right? Because maybe one state will have, you know, very specific regulations and they're, yes, they're going to have to, they're going to need a breathalyzer or something of that sort. And just as a reference point, Statistics Canada has published an average national price of about $6.83 a gram. That's likely to vary country to country and in the case of the U.S., state to state. Let's talk for a second about those Canadian tie-ups. Yeah, so most of them are listed in Toronto. Uh, and what's fascinating is you're seeing the big Canadian banks involved in these deals because, again, it's not legal at the federal level in the U.S. So a bank like J.P. Morgan or Bank of America would really struggle with, you know, how do you manage this with compliance? But yes, so we we saw the largest pot deal earlier this year where a company called Aurora Cannabis by a rival called MedRelief, uh, and that was a deal that was more than $2 billion. So that's actually a pretty sizable uh, takeover right? And then a few days later, we saw four different companies in Canada come together. And it's just showing that, right, everyone is trying to get out ahead. They want to be uh, the largest provider of this because like in the beverage space or like in the alcohol space, inevitably, it it becomes somewhat of an oligopoly or just a few big players who dominate the industry. And and when you think in the future, in maybe five to 10 years, when this is legal in more countries, if it, if it is legal in more countries, you might see a company like AB InBev, right? This huge beverage conglomerate decide, okay, the next market we want to tap into is weed, right? That's not off limits. You could see, uh, you know, Bat or another big tobacco company do the same thing. So a lot of these companies are gearing up to get into that place. Eric, can we talk for a second about, I guess, some of the risk here? Talking to, to analysts and, and some of these executives, it seems like there's a lot of focus on the fact that there's so much untapped market potential, so many states and countries still to adopt legalization. Is there any downside? There are huge risks to investing in this space right now, right? Like it's there's so much that isn't known. We're going on projections from consulting firms and hey, does this person really know what they're talking about? Or is this just kind of an estimate plucked from thin air? We don't know what the real competition is, how much of this is going to be in the regulated space by companies that are public and have to disclose their financials and how much is going to stay kind of in the black market or away from public view. One of the things that we've seen that's been quite successful is that states that, you know, have legalized medical or recreational marijuana have seen, you know, tax accounts rise quite a bit. And so they've been able to fund other projects. So that's given some sense that, yes, there is a demand for this product. But that said, when, I mean, let's just take Colorado for an example, right? So they've legalized medical marijuana there, I believe also recreational marijuana. A question for you is, what happens when it's legal in New Jersey, right? Does that sap the Colorado market at all? Are we seeing people cross border with this? It's really difficult to put any number on the size of the market. And that's why you have these estimates that are mind-bogglingly wide. And what happens when competition increases? I mean, does Aurora's business still make sense if weed costs what half of what it does a gram right now. That's something that will be definitely in question. I mean, this isn't a commodity that we're trading on, you know, in New York on the commodity exchange. This is that's not happening right now. This is all kind of um privately done by companies. Yeah, there are so many unknowns in the market still. Sort of explains the onslaught of these early adopting risk hungry entrepreneurs and investors piling in. Thanks, Eric. Special thanks this week to John Authors for helping me crunch some numbers and to Gregory Meyer and Eric Platt for their reporting on the cannabis industry.
Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.